Chapter Six, Part Two of the Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boulderwood. Chapter Six, Part Two. What a change from the days when a few fishermen or prospectors constituted the entire population! Strahan was now crowded with eager, anxious men all of whom had money to spend. Vessels were arriving all day long, sailing craft as well as steamers, loaded with supplies of all kinds, for the silver field of Zeehan, so named after one of the vessels of Abel Tasman. It was a scene of hopeless confusion, as far as the freighting was concerned. Mining machinery, groceries, drapery, blankets, axes, picks and shovels were all dumped upon the sand, with scant ceremony and no regularity. Day after day they had been passing historic landmarks, were actually on the scene of Marcus Clarke's great novel, His Natural Life. They could afford to wait. Hell's Gates lay behind them. In the distance rose the Isle of the Dead, to which they promised themselves to visit one day, with a ramble among the ruined prison houses where so many tortured souls had languished. One pictured the wretched officers in charge, how dull and aimless their lives. Small wonder if they grew savage and vented the humours, bred of ennui and isolation, upon the wretched convicts. The walls of the little stone church are standing still. Tregonwell had camped there for a few days once with some fishermen, shooting ducks at night and fishing in the long, still, silent days. What a lonely place for men to be stationed at! The interminable forest walled it in on all sides to the very shore. They pulled for miles up the Gordon River, a grand and picturesque stream, but the land on either bank was absolutely barren of herbage. Nothing grew for miles but the unfriendly jungle of undergrowth, upon which waved the mournful pines and eucalypts of the dark impenetrable forest. The distracted owners toiled and wrangled to separate their goods from the ill-assorted mountain of heterogeneous property. After that came the more important question of carriage to the rich but ill-ordered mining camp of Zeehan, where, of course, showy wooden edifices of calico or hessian architecture were being erected. The land transit was wholly dependent upon pack-horses and a few mules. Drays and wagons were then unknown on that coast. The roads were bad for pedestrians, utterly impassable for wheel traffic. The busiest men were the customs officers, stationed to watch the goods shipped from other colonies and to collect the duties exacted thereon. Forwarding agents also had a careworn look. In the midst of the turmoil, a pretentious two-storied hotel was being run up. Stores and warehouses rose like mushrooms from the rain-soaked, humid earth while town allotments were sold and resold at South Sea bubble prices. By dint of Mr. Blount's persuasive powers, now fully exerted, and Tregonwell's abnormal energy conjoined with reckless payments, they saw their personal luggage strapped onto a horse's back and confided to a packer, who started with them and contracted to deliver it when they arrived on the following day. They thus commenced the fifteen-mile walk to Trial Bay, this was the nearest port. It lacked, however, any description of harbour, shelter, or roadway. 
small craft could deliver freight in fine weather. The pedestrians carried their blankets and a change of underclothing. That was the recognised fashion on the west coast. If men didn't start in the rain, they were certain to be wet through before long. Mr. Blount was pleased to admit that their day of commencement was fine, more grateful still to see Trial Bay the same night. Their condition was fairly good, the walking distinctly heavy. A few miles of sandy beach, then came the track through the bush proper. Now commenced the stern realities of the expedition, necessary before Mr. Blount could have personal cognizance of his strangely acquired property. After some experience of the forests which lay between Bunjil and the Lady Julia claim, he had thought himself qualified to judge of rough country. To his astonishment he found that all previous adventure had given him no conception of the picture of dread and awful desolation which the Tasmanian primeval wilderness presented. The gigantic, towering trees, locally known as Juan River Pines, the awful thickets, the rank growth of a jungle more difficult to pass through than any he had known or realised, contributed an appalling carte du pays. The peculiarity of this last forest path was that without a considerable amount of labour being expended upon it, it was impassable for horses, and not only difficult but dangerous for men. The horizontal scrub, locally so termed, was the admixture of immense altitudes of forest timber, with every kind of shrub, vine, and parasitic undergrowth. Stimulated by ceaseless rain, it hid even the surface of the ground from the pedestrian's view. For centuries the unimpeded brushwood beneath the gigantic forest trees, which, shooting upwards for hundreds of feet, combined by their topmost interlacing of branches to exclude the sunlight, had fallen rotted, and formed a superincumbent mass, through which the traveller, passing over a filled-up gully, once falling through the upper platform, so to speak, might sink to unknown depths. From these, indeed, a solitary wayfarer might find it difficult, if not impossible, to return. "'What a track!' exclaimed Blount, toilsomely wading through waist-high bracken, and coming to a halt beside a fallen forest giant, eight feet in diameter, and more than two hundred feet to the first branch. "'It ought to be a prize worth winning that tempts men to penetrate such a howling wilderness. Hardly that, indeed, for there's an awful silence. Hardly a bird or beast, if you notice, seems to make known its presence in the ordinary way.' "'I heard this region described by an old hand as exclusively occupied by shepherds, blacks, bushrangers, tigers, and devils, replied Tregonwell. The blacks killed the shepherds, who in their turn harboured the bushrangers when they didn't betray them for the price set on their heads. The tigers and devils, carnivorous marsupials, killed the sheep, and occasionally the sheepdogs. They were the only other inhabitants of this quasi-infernal region. Facilis de census, then, is another quotation which in this land of contradictions has come to grief. I suppose we ought to try and cross this sapling which bars our path. I will go first, said Trevenwell, and report from the other side. And he prepared to climb the huge and slippery trunk. The outward appearance of Mr. Blount had undergone a striking and material change from the days of Bunjil, and even of the Lady Julia alluvial claim. A blue serge shirt, considerably torn, even tattered from encounters with brambles, had replaced the Norfolk jacket and tweed suit. 
His gaiters were mud-covered to the knees. His boots, extra strong and double-soled, were soaked and wrenched out of shape. To add to this reversal of form, he carried on his back a heavy swag, in which under a pair of coarse blue blankets all his worldly goods immediately indispensable were packed. "'This is something like colonial experience,' said he. With a slight twist of the shoulders and a groan expressive of uneasiness, he shifted the weight of the burden. "'I never carried a swag before, though now I come to think of it, our knapsacks of the old days on walking tours were much the same thing, though more aristocratically named. This confounded thing seems to get heavier every mile. There is a touch of John Bunyan about it also.' The partners found Trial Bay in a worse muddle than Strain. Tents had been pitched everywhere. Men were working hard to get their own and other people's loading away. The small inn was in the usual independent state that obtains when there is too much custom. They could sleep there if they had luck, said the landlord airily, but he didn't know as there was any beds vacant. Accommodation for the travelling public was a secondary matter in his estimation. The bar paying enormous profits was filled to overflowing the whole day through, the night also. Here Tregonwell's colonial and other experience stood him in good stead. An all-round shout or two, combined with an air of good fellowship and judicious douceur to the maid-servants, resulted finally in permission to sleep in number five, which haven of rest, after a South African sort of meal, largely supported by bully beef, the tired partners bestowed themselves. After forcibly ejecting several volunteer bedfellows, they slept more or less soundly until daylight. Certainly no fitter habitat could have been chosen for the desperate, irreclaimable convicts, who alone were exiled there. The dense, gloomy, barren forest provided sustenance neither for man nor beast. No birds, no animals, with one exception, the so-called badger or wombat, which was snared and eaten by the convicts. The endless rain, priceless in other lands, was valueless here, save to change the mood of the outcast from depression to despair. The Gordon River Pine is the most valuable of the enormous growth of timber in proximity to its banks. A beautiful, soft redwood, not unlike the cedar of Australia, it can be split into excellent palings and will, fortunately, burn well, either in a wet or dry state. The dense undergrowth, closely intertwined with climbers, renders it impossible even for a man to get through, unless with an axe to clear his way before him, and the locally named horizontal scrub is a study in forestry. It is possible to progress for a quarter of a mile at a stretch without being nearer the ground than eighteen or twenty feet. This curious shrub, growing as it does at a considerable angle less than forty-five degrees, with its intertwined branches, made the jungle all but impenetrable. A stage of fifteen miles was no child's play, therefore, and meant a hard day's work for strong men, if unused to walking. Even slow walking on the corduroy, demoralised by the heavy traffic, was exasperating. Many logs were missing altogether. This meant extra danger for the pack-horses and mules. These horses were wonderfully sure-footed and sagacious. Though carrying two hundred pounds, dead weight, too, they were fully as clever at this novel species of wayfaring as the mules. The pack-tracks were cleared just wide enough for the animals to travel in single file. 
and with the exception of a few places they could not get off them, as the forest timber, with deadwood and undergrowth, was impossible for any horse to get through until a track was cut. No deviations were possible. In a climate where the rainfall was ninety inches per annum, one could imagine into what a condition these tracks would get. From time to time a pack-horse would sink down behind, irretrievably bogged. In such a case he would wait patiently, knowing that struggling made matters worse, until the packer and his mate came to his assistance. They would lever him up with poles, and whenever they shouted he would make his effort. Sometimes they would unload to give him a chance to extricate himself. Then the packs were put on again, and a general start made. Such men would probably have ten or twelve horses and mules walking loose, often with not even a bridle on. The charge made was at the rate of threepence a pound, roughly twenty-five pounds a ton, from strain to the field in those early days. The only variation from the dense forest was that of the button-grass country. This was composed of open flats covered with a tufted plant, similar to the xanthoria, or grass-tree, only wanting the elongated spear-like seed-stalk. No animal eats the button-grass. It is worthless for fodder, alive or dead. What sights on the road they saw, men and boys, with an odd woman or two, struggling through the mud in the soaking, drizzling rain, men wheeling barrows with their tools, swags, and belongings generally, men harnessed to small carts, tucking them along. Four Germans drew a small wheeled truck, which they had made themselves, and a staunch team they were. So practised had some of the early prospecting parties become that, Tregonwell said, they plied a paying trade of packing on their own backs to outside claims, where pack-tracks for horses had not yet been cut. These men would carry from eighty to a hundred pounds, walking the journey of thirty miles in two days. The charge was a shilling a pound. They would walk back empty in one day. If it seemed high pay, it was hard work. Climbing hills of fifteen hundred feet and going down the other side, with that crashing weight of bacon or flour taxed a man's strength, condition, and pluck. Tregonwell said you could always pick out the packers in a crowd after they had been a year or two at it. They invariably stood over at the knees like old cab-horses from the strain of steadying themselves downhill with heavy weights up. Many a time when the field first opened, said Tregonwell, have I walked beside one of these men the day through, carrying only my blankets and a change, not weighing more than fifteen pounds. My packer companion will carry his fifty to eighty pounds up the long hills with comparative ease, passing me if I didn't look out, pulling up, too, quite fresh at night, while I could scarcely stagger into camp. Yet I could outdo, easily, any other amateur in the field." Some original inventions Blount noted outside of his gradually extending colonial experience. Each camp had a fly pitched permanently over the fireplace to keep the endless rain from putting it out. Kindling wood was kept under this fly so that it was always in readiness. After the fire was well started, green or wet wood could be put on and would burn well. Tregonwell, having once started, said that he soon got into form improving in pace and condition daily. He expatiated on the keen enjoyment of the hot meal at the end of the day's journey, rude as might be the appliances and primitive the cookery. 
The meal was chiefly composed of tinned meat, stewed or curried, with bacon added for flavour, and freshly made damper or johnny cakes to follow. The change of garments was to dry pyjamas, with a blanket wrapped round the wearer. It was, he stated, a luxurious, half-tired, languorous, but fully satisfied feeling, the sensation of mind and body essential to the fullest employment of tobacco. Then the yarns of the old prospectors, grizzled, sinewy, iron-nerved veterans. Where had they not been? California in 49, Ballarat in 51, pioneers of Lamming Flat at the Big Rush, Omeo, Bendigo, New Zealand, West Coast. 25,000 men on the field in a week. Those were the times to see life. Queensland, Charters Towers, Gympie, New Guinea, the Gulf. Ah, this Zeehan racket's a bit of a spurt, but talk of mining. It's dead now. Dead, sir, and buried. Those were the days. The dauntless pioneer fills another pipe and falls into a reverie of cheap-won gold. Reckless revelry wherein perils by land or sea, danger, ay, and death, would seem to have been inextricably mingled. A strange race, the prospectors, sui generis. Hardly a spot on the globe was there, which these men had not searched for the precious metals. Distance, climate, and nothing, less than nothing, in their calculations, once let the fact be established of a payable silver or gold field. Landing in Australia in the early fifties, they had worked on every field before mentioned, and are still ready to join the rush for any country under heaven should gold happen to break out. Klondike, Argentina, South Africa, all equally eligible once the ancient lure is held out. They often put together a few thousand pounds in the early days of a rich gold field, their wide experience and boundless energy making some measure of success certain. They may not drink but all live luxuriously, even extravagantly, while the money lasts, possibly for a few years, then go back to their roving, laborious life. They generally make enough on each field to carry them to the ends of the earth, if necessary, and it is mostly so from their point of view. When funds are low, they can, and do, live cheaply, will work hard, and do long journeys on the scantiest fare. Natural bushmen, often Australian-born, from this type of man, above all others, a regiment might be formed of guides or scouts, ready to fight stubbornly in any war of the future, would hunt, harry, and run to earth to wet or other slippery boar, if given the contract and a free hand. Harking back on his experiences, that wild west coast, continued Tregonwell, was a place to remember. The wooded ranges piled one upon another as far as the eye could reach, in shape, height, timber, or colouring, hardly differing in any essential particular, yet the noted prospectors never lost themselves, stopping for weeks at a likely show, as long as the bacon and flour held out, they avoided all settlements or mining centres on the way. The first prospector, George Bell, carried a lamp of galena of forty pounds weight in his swag right through from Zeehan to Mount Bischoff. For a distance of fifty miles, he went straight between the two points without a road or track cut for him. When the partners arrived at Zeehan, it certainly appeared to Mr. Blount a place of peculiar and unusual characteristics. The excitement was naturally great. Stores, hotels, dwellings, lodging-houses, 
going up in all directions. Timber was plentiful to excess. Luckily, such as split into slabs and palings easily. Tents were beginning to be voted hardly equal to so vigorous a climate. No one, however, stayed under cover for that reason. They were wet all day and every day, but the rule was to change into dry things at night. No harm, strange to say, came to anybody. There was less sickness, certainly less typhoid, on that field than any since reported. Less certainly than at Broken Hill and the West Australian gold fields. The hotels, quickly run up, were rough both in appearance and management. About fifty men slept in the billiard room for the first few nights. Then, as their importance as capitalists began to be recognised, beds were allotted. Over these they had to mount guard for an hour or more before bedtime, as a rule, or else to chuck out the intruder. Here the personal equation came in. The landlord had no time to support the legal rights of his guests. He merely went so far as to allot each man a bed. He had to keep it and pay for it. The term capitalist on a mining field is understood to apply to people with money of their own or substantial backers who are prepared to pay down the deposit on mines, sufficiently developed or rich enough to float, worth securing the option of purchase for a month, so as to give time to raise the necessary funds. The Tregonwell party had secured the fancy show of the field, that is, the next richest in reputation to the Comstock by promptness in agreeing to all the owner's conditions, as he named them, thus giving him no chance to change his mind. Other offers had been made from Hobart and elsewhere. However, they paid a liberal deposit, and after thoroughly sampling and examining the ore body, agreed to float the mine in a fortnight. Very short terms. Also to place £10,000 to its credit as a working capital, and to give the owner £5,000 cash, as well as a certain number of shares. They knew the market, however, and their business. Tregonwell walked to Strahan in a day and a half, being then in high condition, and got off to Hobart by steamer that night. Had the transfers signed and registered in the mines department in his name, subject to the conditions being fulfilled. Wired to their Melbourne brokers, and in twenty-four hours the shares were applied for three times over, and the stock quoted at a premium. It seems easy, but such is not always the case. The boom must be on. The buyers must be well known to the public as having the necessary experience, and being reliable on a cash basis. A shout from a tall, well-dressed man, comparatively, we may say, greets them at the long-desired camp. He comes forward and shakes hands with Tregonwell more heartily than even the occasion demands, it would seem. "'By Jove, old fellow, I am glad to see you. Would have sent a line to Hobart to hurry you up if I could have found a man to take it. But most of the fellows have gone to Marble Creek, so we're a small community. But we're forgetting our manners. Introduce me.' "'Mr. Valentine Blount, permit me to present Mr. Charles Herbert, one of our partners.' You mustn't swear at the place, the roads, the climate, the people, or anything belonging to Tasmania, as it's his native land, to which he is deeply attached. In all other respects, he may be treated as an Englishman. He certainly looks like one, said Blount, glancing over the fine figure and regular features of the tall, handsome Tasmanian. If the other gentleman who makes up the syndicate is a match for him, we should be an efficient quartet. 
Clark is a lightweight, said Tregonwell, but as wiry as a dingo, besides being the eminent mining expert of the party. Of course, when I'm away. But he's perhaps more up-to-date, and when he went to California he learned the latest wrinkles in silver mining. He's rather an invalid at present, having jarred his right hand with a pick, and sprained his left ankle in taking a walk through this merry greenwood, as old writers called the forest. "'I thought I had seen some rough country in New South Wales,' said Blount, "'but this tops anything I have ever seen or indeed heard of, except an African jungle.' "'Climate not quite so bad, no fever yet,' replied Herbert, "'but can't say much for the Queen's Highway. However, the silver's all right, and where that's the case anything else follows in good time.' but come inside. No horses to want feeding. Luckily, as the oats which came in advance cost a guinea a bucket. So saying, he led the way into a small but not uncomfortable hut, at one side of which a fire of logs was blazing in a huge stone chimney. The walls of this rude dwelling were composed of the trunk of the black fern tree, placed vertically in the ground, and the interstices being filled up with a compost of mud and twigs, which formed a wind and waterproof wall, while it lasted. On one of the rude couches lay a man who excused himself from rising on the score of a sprained ankle. "'It's so confoundedly painful,' he said, "'that even standing gives me fits. Of all the infernal, brutal, godforsaken holes that ever a man's evil genius lured him into, this is the worst and most villainous.' In California, the Tasmanians and Cornstalks were looked on as criminals, and occasionally lynched as such, but you could walk out in daylight, and were not made a pack-horse of. If I were this gentleman, whom I see Tregonwell has enticed here under false pretenses, I should hire a Chinaman to carry me back to Strain, and bring an action against him as soon as I reached Hobart. "'I'm afraid he's delirious, Mr. Blount,' said Herbert soothingly. "'and as he's lost a leg and an arm, so to speak, "'we can't hammer him at present. "'But he's not a bad chap, when he's clothed and in his right mind. "'In the meantime, as a fellow countryman, I apologise for him.' "'Don't believe a word these monomaniacs tell you, Mr. Blount,' said the sufferer, "'trying to raise himself on one arm and subsiding with a groan. "'Herbert's an absurd optimist, and Tregonwell, well, he knows what Cousin Jack's are.' However, after supper, I dare say I shall feel better. Do you happen to have a late paper about you? Several, said Blount, which I hadn't had time to read before we left, including a weekly times. In that case, said the pessimist, I retract much of what I have said. I have read everything they have here, and thought I was stranded in the wilderness without food, raiment, or pabulum mentis. Now I descry a gleam of hope. "'I brought a packet of wax candles,' observed Blount. "'Thought they might be useful.' "'Useful!' cried the invalid. "'You have saved my life. They are invaluable. Fancy having to read by a slush lamp. Mr. Blount, we are sworn brothers from this hour.' "'For heaven's sake, let us have supper,' interposed Tregonwell. "'Is the whisky-jar empty? I feel as if a nip would not be out of place, where two tired, hungry, muddy travellers are concerned.' "'Not quite so bad as that,' replied Herbert, who had been spreading tin plates and pannikins over the rude table on trestles, with corned beef in a dish of the same material, and baker's bread for a wonder. A modicum of whisky from the jar referred to was administered to each one of the company, prior to the announcement of supper. 
when the primitive meal had been discussed with relish mr jack clark considered himself sufficiently restored to sit up against the wall of the hut and begin at mr blount's newspapers with the aid of one of that gentleman's wax candles in a bottle by way of candlestick the others preferred to sit round the fire on three-legged stools provided for such purpose and smoke carrying on cheerful conversation the while the discovery of the comstock as a deeply interesting subject commended itself to mr blount so tregonwell persuaded herbert who was the pioneer to sketch the genesis of this famous property destined to exercise so important an influence on their future lives come charlie said he you're the real prospector clark wouldn't have gone into it but for you and i shouldn't have taken a share but for blount who knew nothing about mines having just come from england i wanted to chuck it but blount who is obstinate not a bad virtue in its way determined for that very reason to stick to it so he paid his share of the expenses went away met all kinds of adventures and all sorts of conditions of men with of course a girl or two not wholly unattractive and forgot all about it i kept an eye on it so did charlie complied with the labour condition kept up the pegs according to the act did a little work now and then and now charlie it's your turn mr herbert put down his pipe carefully and began the wondrous tale you know i was always fond of mooning about wallaby shooting fishing and collecting birds and plants in mountain country we had a sheep station on the edge of this horizontal scrub country in old times and i used when i had leave to get away and spend a week or two of my christmas holiday there one of the shepherds was a great pal of mine like many of the prisoners of the crown in old days he had been transported wrongfully or for very slight offences as much to get rid of britain's surplus population as for any other reason it really would seem he was fairly educated and was a very decent well-behaved old chap with a taste for geology and minerals when his sheep were camped in the middle of the day i would find out his flock and we would boil the billy and have lunch with ever so much talk look here master charles he said one day as he took out a dull grey-looking stone from his dilly-bag do you know what that is i did not and like most youngsters of my age looked upon it as rubbish and showed that i would rather have a shot at one of the tigers or devils that came every now and then and killed the sheep at the stations than all the silver ore in the country it's silver ore said he in a solemn voice and there's enough where that came from to buy all your father's stations ten times over if i could only find my way back to the place where i found it and why can't you said i you know all the country round here the old man looked very sad and pointed out towards the frenchman's cap which was just being covered with mist while a heavy shower began to fall and a thunderstorm roared and echoed among the rocks and caves of the tiers at the foot of which we managed to get shelter it was a strange day and a strange sight i saw when i picked up this slug he said i was never nearer losing my life but i'll tell you all about it another day you'd better get back to the station now or you'll get wet through and maybe catch a cold and then the master won't let you come here again so i was obliged to leave the telling of the story to another day i forgot all about the silver ore and chiefly remembering the strange part of the story was determined to hear about it from the old man another day it was the late springtime when we had this talk old chesterton and i but a month or so afterwards i got a holiday 
and as the weather was warm and fine i cleared out to this outstation and never rested till i bailed up the old man for another yarn it is sometimes hot in the island though you mightn't think so don't believe him growled mr clark it's a popular error the seasons have changed listen to that the rain was certainly falling with a sustained volume which discredited any references to warmth and sunshine however continued herbert paying not the slightest attention remember it was at the end of the christmas holidays and the rocks felt red-hot there had been bush-fires but the young feed such as it was was lovely and green the air was clear the sky for once hadn't a cloud on it and the old man was in a wonderful good humour for a shepherd well master charles he said if ye must have it ye must i don't know that it can do you any harm though it kept me awake for weeks afterwards and every time the dog barked i felt my heart beat like and would wake me up all of a tremble well to come to the story i was sitting on a log half asleep with the sheep camped quiet and comfortable under a big pine when i heard my old dog growl he never did that for nothing so i looked up and the blood nearly froze in my veins at what i saw it wasn't much to scare the seven senses out of me but i knew how i stood a man and a woman were coming down a gully from the direction of the mountain they were near enough to see me and it was no use making a bolt of it i should only lose my life anyhow i couldn't leave the flock i should get flogged for that no excuse was taken for anything of that sort in those days following the man was a young gin with a lot of things on her back as if they had been chipped in camp she was much like any other black girl of her age sixteen or thereabouts maybe less they grow up fast and get old fast too especially when they are worked hard beaten and brutally treated as most of them are and this one certainly was poor mary the man had no boots and his trousers were ragged he was mostly dressed in kangaroo skins and had a fur cap on he had a long beard down to his chest his black hair fell in a mat over his shoulders he carried a double-barrelled gun and had a belt with a pouch in it round his waist he looked like the pictures of robinson crusoe but i didn't feel inclined to laugh when he came close and stared me in the face i had seen i lived with criminals of all sorts before i came to tasmania but such a savage bloodthirsty-looking brute as the man before me i had never come across before he saw that i was afraid well i might be if he had shot me there and then it was only what he had done to others with a fiendish grin that made him if possible more beast-like in appearance he said did ye ever see mick brady afore no well ye see him now maybe you won't live long enough to forget him i've heard of you i said of course i tried to look cool but my teeth chattered for all the day was so hot i'm a government man like yourself i've never done you any harm that i know of no harm he shouted no harm aren't you one of old herbert's shepherds a lot of mean crawlers that work for a bloody tyrant and inform on poor starving brutes like me that's been driven to take to the bush by cruelty and injustice of every kind i came here to shoot you and shoot you i will and your dog too the dingoes and the tigers may work their will on the flock afterwards he'll feel that a darn sight more than the loss of a shepherd i know him the hard-hearted old slave-driver god forgive him for miscalling a good man and a kind master don't shoot the dog i said he's the best i ever had 
a prisoner's life's not much in this country but a dog like him you don't see every day kneel down he said and don't waste time you can say a short prayer to a god almighty or the devil whichever you favour most old nick's given me a lift many a time he stood there with the death light in his red-rimmed wolfish eyes and no more mercy in them than a tiger's lapping the blood of a hindu letter-carrier when i was a soldier i'd seen the poor things brought in from the jungle with their throats torn out and mangled beyond knowing surely man was never in a worse case or nearer death strangely i felt none of the fear which i did when i saw him first i had no hope but i prayed earnestly to god believing that a very few moments would suffice to place me beyond mortal terrors the girl meanwhile had crept closer to us and stood with her large eyes wide open half in surprise half in terror as she leaned her laden back against one of the rock pillars which stood around she murmured a few words in her own language i knew it slightly against bloodshed and for mercy but he turned on her with a savage oath and made as though he would add her murder to the long list of his crimes End of chapter six. Part 2